you're a police officer or currently working in law enforcement and you're considering your career, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Andy Labrum. Welcome to the Blue Light Leavers podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Blue Light Leavers podcast. Now today I've got the absolute pleasure of talking to Phil Jones. Now Phil is the National Conduct and Performance Lead for the Police Federation of England and Wales and he's very kindly agreed to be interviewed by me uh, to talk through the whole misconduct process from start to finish, both misconduct and gross misconduct. And we cover all sorts of topics um, in this episode and also answer a lot of questions that were asked within the Blue Light Leavers group as well. So uh, we cover everything from what is and what isn't misconduct and gross misconduct. We talk about um, Fed friends and uh, Fed reps and the type of qualifications they have, the training that they get. We talk through the suspension criteria and uh, the severity assessment. We talk about IOPC, we talk timelines and why things take as long as they do. We talk about the do's and don'ts. And we also talk about um, the impact on pension if you are kicked out as a result of gross misconduct and the barred list. And we cover a whole range of topics all to do with misconduct, gross misconduct. And I think this is going to be hugely interesting to, uh, to so many people for lots of different reasons, obviously, with so much going on at the moment. Uh, so let's go over to Phil now. Just before we head over to the interview, I just want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by the brilliant Motorsource Group, who, like Blue Light Leavers, are very proud sponsors of the Emergency Services Football League. Now, I've met CEO Steve Thornton a number of times now, and I've also interviewed him for the podcast. And I've also met the team, and I've been up to their head office. And they're just a really lovely bunch of people who are genuinely doing the right thing and doing their bit to say thanks. Now, Motorsource Group offer genuine new car discounts to serving and retired emergency services personnel including police, NHS, fire and rescue, and prison service. They're completely independent, offering a full range of makes and models, and are rated excellent by their customers on Trustpilot. They also work closely with the Police Federation and with NARPO, and they deliver direct to your door. I promise you, you will make savings. Now, to find out more, go to bluelightleavers.com forward slash partners. That's bluelightleavers.com forward slash partners. Hi, Phil. Thanks ever so much for agreeing to be interviewed on the Blue Light Leavers podcast. This, uh, this this particular episode is going to be of huge interest to an awful lot of people for, for very obvious reasons shortly. So, uh, um, so yeah, I, and I'm incredibly grateful for your time as well. I know how busy you are and uh, and only getting busier as well. So thank you, mate. Thanks for making the time for me. No, you're welcome. Would you explain to listeners of the podcast um, who you are and uh, what your role is, please, of course, my name's Phil Jones. I'm uh, a police sergeant within uh, Staffordshire Police, but I'm seconded nationally to the Police Federation of England and Wales, and I hold the portfolio nationally for conduct and performance. I've been doing that since June 2022, so still finding my feet, but uh, my day job is now fully focused around the world of conduct and performance. Yeah, so you're quite busy then? Just a little bit, yeah. Yeah, and then you're going to get busier as well, aren't you, without a shadow of a doubt. And and um you know, I, I am so grateful for you taking the time to do this because, you know, there is some confusion around, um, you know, what people can and can't do, what their expectations are. And, and um, you know, members of the Blue Light Leavers um, Facebook group were able to submit some questions as well. And we'll, we'll cover those topics as we go through this. But um, so, yeah, really very, very grateful. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, so in terms of opening up then, shall we talk about um, what is misconduct and gross misconduct, and then we can we, we can let it flow from there. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, so in 2020, we had some new uh, misconduct regulations, which kind of um, helped us understand the world of misconduct a little better and give us some examples of what could and couldn't be uh, misconduct. So if I refer back, uh, we work with Home Office guidance as well, hand in hand with the misconduct regulations, and that kind of gives us a steer as to basically says that investigations and disciplinary proceedings should only be initiated where the matter is so serious to justify a written warning or above. And that's generally where the world of misconduct is born, if you like. Mm. And when I talk around um, conduct, what may or may not be uh, misconduct, at the lower end of the scale, we've got perhaps been a little bit careless, I've got something wrong, perhaps need to improve and learn. You may have some personal mitigation as to why things have gone wrong or just simply, you know, the standards needs to be a bit better and you're not good at your job. Then moves up the scale towards the misconduct arena around being perhaps a little bit foolish, stupidity, human frailty, 
simply having a bad day at the office mm-hmm. onto actions such as being deliberate or persistent, premeditated, uh, knew it was wrong but carried on and then criminal and that sits in the arena of kind of gross misconduct. So by having these kind of pointers around what is what, it enables us to kind of decipher what is misconduct and what isn't. So if I look at kind of um, a really simple analogy of what misconduct is, you've got due care in terms of driving standards and dangerous driving and that's it with misconduct. So simple misconduct is where the standard fall below that of the standards of professional behaviour and gross misconduct falls far below those mm. standards and that's where the thresholds are. Okay, so the, I mean, that's really helpful to just to understand that. Um, in terms of sanctions, is it right, should we go through that now? Is this a good period of time to go yeah, through yeah. the so sanctions at it, this point? In, in general terms, if you're being dealt with at a misconduct level, um, the guidance says that uh, that should be at a written warning or above. So the worst outcome at a misconduct meeting would be a final written warning, and they are valid. Um, a written warning can be valid for up to 18 months uh, and so on. At gross misconduct level, mm-hmm. this is where it can lead to dismissal with or without notice, could be a reduction in rank is there as well. So that's where the different scales um, are in terms of misconduct and gross misconduct. Okay. And and at what point could the Fed get involved? And obviously we've we've got our, um, you know, we have our friends, obviously Fed friends um, that we're able to speak to as well. Is that for, at what point can they get involved? So I I would always say to people, um, whenever you go into a meeting, whether that's informal or formal, with supervision or it's around performance issues, it could be a whole raft of things. Seek out your local Fed rep, have a chat, invite them to the meeting. The Fed reps are there to have your best interests at heart, to offer some guidance around regulations, policies, that kind of thing. In terms of um, a police friend, they can be a police officer, it could be a member of police staff, or um, somebody nominated from the Police Federation. Um, and they're there predominantly to advise the officer throughout the misconduct process or grievance process, or it could be a performance framework process. Um, they can uh, represent at the misconduct proceedings or accelerated misconduct proceedings, depending on obviously where it was assessed by the appropriate authority. We can make represent- representations to the appropriate authority as well, concerning any aspects of the proceedings under the regulations. And also we can accompany the officer to an interview or a hearing, again, wherever that uh, that misconduct sat. Mm. Okay. All right. That's helpful. Thank you. So if we if we take it from the start, say um, a complaint is made and it goes through either through the supervisor or it ends up at professional standards, DPS, whatever you, you, yeah. your um, you know, complaints department is called, um, a lot of the questions relate to timelines and how soon you know you should be served notice and what happens after that period so so maybe if we can take it in sort of chronological order to some extent phil that'd be really helpful i think if you know that complaint's made what what would happen from that point onwards so generally when that complaint's received the appropriate authority within the the performance standards unit or professional standards unit will have to assess where that conduct uh, sits in terms of is it misconduct or is it gross misconduct? And that would be an assessment if the conduct was proven where the outcome may lie. And once they followed that assessment, they will then decide whether there needs to be an investigation or not. And then that would be given. I mean, that's covered by Regulation 14 in the misconduct regs, by the way. Um, we then look, if it is going to go down to the investigation route under Reg 15, the appropriate authority must appoint an investigator. That investigator must have the appropriate level of knowledge skills and experience in order to plan and manage the investigation and their role predominantly is to gather evidence to establish the facts of all the circumstances into the alleged misconduct but also to assist the appropriate authority as to whether there may be a case to answer in respect to the misconduct or gross misconduct or indeed it might be that there is no case to answer at all. Mm. The investigator absolutely must as soon as practicable after being appointed draw up a terms of reference so what scope are they going to do with the investigation? What inquiries are they going to make? How far and wide is this likely to be? But more importantly, you know, around timescales for the individual as well. So once that terms of reference, the investigator's been appointed, um, they would also look at whether 
depending on how serious it was, whether an officer needs to be suspended or not. And that's catered mm-hmm. by Regulation 11. And that basically says that the appropriate authority may suspend the officer concerned from the office of constable. And there's a set criteria that they must um, consider. Um, the suspension would be on full pay. So the officer wouldn't be financially detriment in terms of their salary. Mm-hmm. And the, the general criteria for the suspension is that, having considered the temporary redeployment and alternative duties or location, it wouldn't be uh, appropriate in the circumstances. So in other words, we've considered another back office function role. However, that's not deemed appropriate given the nature of the allegation. Mm-hmm. Second criteria is it appears to the appropriate authority that either the effectiveness of the investigation may be prejudicial by the person remaining at work. And then the final thing is, having regard to the nature of the allegation and any relevant considerations, that there may be public interest that warrants the officer being suspended. So the default position should be, can we keep the officer at work? Mm. And if the answer is no due to those three points, that's likely to influence whether somebody will be suspended or not. Mm. Okay. We then fast forward of, well, how does the officer know that there's going to be an investigation? That's covered by Regulation 17, where it says, um, as soon as reasonably is practicable, the appointed uh, investigator must give written notice to the officer around what the, con- the conduct is that's been alleged, uh, what are the standards of professional behaviour have alleged to have been breached, the result of the severity assessment, is it gross misconduct or misconduct, and also, um, they must identify themselves as the investigator and issue the terms of reference of the investigation. They will then be afforded an opportunity to respond within 10 working days, and that's where the role of the, the Fed Rep is uh, pivotal. For a number of things, really, the, the Fed Rep may steer the response or put the member in touch with legal representation as um, gross misconduct matters or criminal matters will undoubtedly uh, involve legal representation and that's covered by regulation 8 of the, the misconduct regs that says an officer has a right to be legally represented by a lawyer of the officer's choice at misconduct hearings or accelerated hearings so that's in the provision okay so if we just rewind just a fraction mate, the um so you mentioned that, that 10 days could you just clarify that again for me that so that's 10 period. working days from the point the notice is given in order to respond Okay, so you have to respond within those 10 days, do you? So, again, depending on what the steer is from the investigating officer, they may wish a written response, in which case you would do that within the time frame, mm. or they may wish to interview you, in which case they will let you know of time, date, location when they propose to interview you. Yeah. Okay, that's that's interesting, because like I say, one of, the, one of the biggest things that comes across time and time again is the length of time this takes. And we'll, we'll go through that a little bit later, if that's okay, because yeah, of course. we've both known processes yeah. that have gone on for years. And I, you know, I was a skipper as well. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I had someone on my team who was suspended full pay for years and the process took yeah. such a long time. So it'd be really good to understand a little later on. We'll go through that and answer some of the questions that have been asked. Okay. But that, that is definitely a key area that we want to look at. And it's just interesting that obviously we need to uh, respond within 10 days um, or it goes to interview, which can take well, no, weeks I mean, months. Is that, um, that right? potentially it, it, it could do? Uh, but again, that's a, that's a steer when the forms are served to get that guidance from the investigator as to where they're at with their investigation, what their uh, plan looks like, mm. and the time limits around the next steps. Okay. So, in terms of those your responses, Phil, what what can you do? If you're asked that you need to give a response within that 10-day period, what, what's open to you? Okay, well, that will be a discussion between the officer or the member and, and their federation representative. It's an opportunity under Regulation 18 to put some responses together. And that will generally be around, uh, you can either do that written or in an oral format relating to any matters under the investigation. And uh, we may provide any relevant documents that we consider to be uh, reasonable lines of investigation so depending on what the investigation is and what the the conduct under scrutiny is we may have i don't know it could be uh, emails it could be text messages it could be written evidence that we want to submit um um to assist our defense if you like mm. 
Okay. And at what point could a solicitor get involved or, or should a solicitor get involved? Um, so a solicitor would become involved either at a gross misconduct level or criminal. Um, I think it's fair to touch on at this moment in time where you've got your police federation representatives. They go on a, uh, a course at, at, at Leatherhead usually to do the basic reps course. They can then specialise in the world of misconduct and you've got conduct and performance reps and then you've got advocacy trained reps. So it would be those advocacy trained reps that would support you or the colleagues on that journey of uh, gross misconduct and they're able to offer enhanced levels of support and advice uh, as indeed the solicitor would on that journey. Okay so if you are going through that process then you'd be better off asking or just ensuring that your your fed rep or your friend is is advocacy trained. Yes. Yep. Yeah okay cool. Um and again, in terms of, of things like, um, I, I don't know whether bringing in the IOPC at this stage, Phil, might be interesting just to work out, um, you know, which direction things going, whether it's kept within force or, or where mm-hmm. that decision is made around that severity, yeah. what goes to IOPC and what stays um, within yeah. the organisation. Okay, so um, ordinarily there are a number of criteria that would warrant an IOPC referral. It's normally kind of death, serious injury, which would associate with... Uh, contact with the police there's also in terms of the m- misconduct world could be abusive position for sexual gain it could be a particular vulnerability it could be a failing in command these are all things that get taken into consideration and referred into the IEPC they then have to consider is it within their uh, uh, policies to take that investigation on and similarly the regulations apply to them in terms of that they must notify the officer concerned that they're going to do the investigation provide the terms of reference and give a, a clear steer as to what they're doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it. Okay. And I think it's fair to say in terms of um, it, it won't be lost on uh, your listeners and your good self that the Federation have had a time limits campaign for quite a while that we're yeah. saying, you know, uh, police officers are human beings and quite often what I've experienced in my world um, is that it's kind of, when their officer gets that regulation 17 notice, it's a bit like being on a roller coaster of emotions. Absolutely. Thrown all over the place and they, they divert from anger, frustration, hurt, upset, all, all the things that you would expect. And it's quite a traumatic period for them. Mm-hmm. So to absolutely get that information around who's investigating, what time scales, And we know now with the ever-changing landscape and policing, PSDs and the IEPC are seeing an absolute increase in referrals going in which the consequence would be potentially that time limits are going to go further and further again is there any we may as well cover this now because it, it's, it's just going through all the time and it's that reoccurring theme all the way through but um you know it is why does the process take so long when obviously we have to you know our investigations from um you know policing perspective with crime and victims and everything else yeah we're obviously we've got strict time limits and um you know obviously things like bail and that sort of thing as well you know everything is time um time bound and yet when it comes to complaints suspension iopc yeah. it takes an inordinate amount of time and the you know you nailed it the impact on cops is unbelievable it's so poor and, and it's it'd be really interesting to understand obviously the fed position i know you're saying about you've been asking for um you know for timelines and i mean you've got this constant thing in place but nothing seems to be changing you know why why is it why do things take so long obviously the investigations are thorough and quite rightly so both in terms of uh, the officer and the uh, complainant the public have to take confidence in those investigations being thorough um that said i think um, it, it's fair to say the IPC have got better and um, have made a commitment that 90% of investigations will be reviewed where possible that aren't deemed to be major investigations within 12 months. And there are some statistics out there to support the fact that they are improving. Um, and again, the policing landscape is ever-changing. And as we've seen with uh, covid it's had a knock-on effect with 
uh, Crown Prosecution Service, bringing things to the floor, uh, all those kind of things. Um, and unfortunately, things haven't been there in a timely fashion. Um, we want it to be more uh, slick. We want the decisions coming quicker. Uh, we know colleagues are going to leave the the profession before mm. perhaps outcomes have occurred, whether that's due to you know service or pension. Um, but it's not fair, as I'm sure you'd agree, that they have this pressure and stress over their heads around, am I going to get in trouble or not? Um, mm-hmm. And how can I move on with my life or career because I've got this hanging over me? That's absolutely not lost on me. Mm-hmm. And that's my job nationally to be challenging the IPC and working with our stakeholders to make that journey as effective and efficient as possible. Mm. No, that's fair. Thanks for that. And I don't, you know, I know I'm asking difficult questions as well, mate. So thank you for that. I appreciate <laughs> you being so candid. So thank you. Um, it, it, I think it'd be really helpful as well so people understand their rights um, in interview as well. So, you know, as they're coming up to interview, what how, what can they do to prep uh, to make sure that they've, you know, they're really cited on everything they need to be and that yeah. they can then make a decision based on what the information is, whether they do a written statement or whether they actually answer questions. It'd be really helpful yeah. to, to, you know, for people to understand their rights as well, Phil. Okay. So if 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 and when we, we get to the interview stage, I would uh, hope that at some point we've had the disclosure from the investigating officer. So um, as we would do in normal everyday life as cops, we would plan and prepare for the interview. We kind of know what the allegation is who's kind of saying it where, where it's suitable and uh, appropriate to do so. Uh, and with that, then an assessment can be made around, do we do um, a, a prepared statement? Do we give a no comment statement, depending on circumstance? Or do you give a full account? Um, and that's all down to the disclosure that's being given and the instructions from the officer that we're representing. Um, as we know, um, I would always advocate that you need to come out of these processes with your integrity and your honesty intact, because if there's any question mark around honesty and integrity, then how can you carry on fulfilling the role of a a constable? Because that underpins everything that we stand for. So you've got to stay true to yourself and give those clear instructions to your Fed rep so they can then uh, represent you in your best interests. Mm, Okay. And and just again, just to clarify for people, a... A legal representative would be involved at the gross misconduct stage yeah, of the interview, yeah. or criminal. Um, but if it is straightforward, mis- so straightforward. But if it is misconduct, then that would be your fed rep who's advocacy trained. It, yeah, predominantly, yes, it would be. Um, th- those who are conduct and performance trained can and do represent colleagues at a misconduct meeting. Obviously, the difference is that whatever outcome you get, it isn't dismissal. So it's 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 obviously yeah, lower level. Yeah, understood. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so if we so we've been through timelines, uh, we've been through some of the frustrations obviously that, that people feel around that. Is there any comeback at all? So for example, if um, you know, years later, as has happened, hopefully less, as you say, with that 12 months is is really good news. Um, but if it does come back that uh, no case to answer or people are exonerated or whatever it might be. Uh, did, are there any comebacks at all? Is there anything that could be done in terms of are you able to make a complaint about what happened or any processes or anything like that at all? Um, I think I think naturally, depending on what the outcome was, you'd, you'd, you'd want to kind of sit down and reflect and debrief, you know, could things have been done differently, whether mm. that was the host force or the IPC. Um, again, I think it's that conversation with uh, the Federation. Are we looking at... Uh, kind of slander type scenario are we looking at we're just not happy with the process and therefore are we looking at grievance type procedure in force obviously if you've left the organization um, again there's no reason why you can't link in with the local federation get that advice seek the avenues to go down um, you know if you're not happy with the the way that the IOPC have investigated you've got an avenue to complain there if you're not happy with the way the force have dealt with things you'll have an avenue whether that's as I say, a grievance type policy or as then a member of the public making a complaint in force and then they'd have to make a decision on whether that stayed in force for investigation or went outside for further scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, that's helpful, thank you. The, and just another question that came up as well is sort of linked to this and, and maybe actually back a fraction is, is around yeah. the threshold test and evidence required. Yeah. And one of the questions related to whether um, professional standards operate under the same rules as as 
uh, other parts of the legal system when it comes to that threshold test for evidence. Okay, well, um, the, with the misconduct regulations, they are held to the civil test, which is on the balance of probabilities. Mm. It's not held to the criminal threshold because that's obviously beyond reasonable doubt, and that's mm. how it how it is because it's a civil process. In terms of evidential thresholds, um, if I put my custody hat back on, I would always work to the full code test and public interest test, and you've got to obviously satisfy both around what does the evidence look like? Are we likely to get a uh, conviction, mm-hmm. um, sound conviction, and also is it in the public interest to proceed. Obviously, I would suggest that because we're police officers and the role that we hold in society, that public interest is always going to be there because we're scrutinised, as we know, uh, around the role of responsibilities, use of force, all these kind of things are in the forefront of uh, the public's mind. And again, sort of linked to this as well and linked to our conversations we're talking about as, as things are getting busier for, for both of us. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, are there likely to be an increase or an investment in more Fed reps to to assist colleagues or, or how, you know, how does that work in terms of numbers per force? Okay, so each force has a ratio of how many Fed reps they uh, have. Obviously, we've seen the recruitment of a number of police officers across the country. Um, what has as forces grow, the ratio of Fed reps should grow as well. Mm. So, answer yes, there should be an uplift in, in Fed reps. It might not be instant, but we obviously operate on a triannual basis. But we can fill those voids if need be uh, throughout the course of the, the year. Mm. Okay, yeah, lovely. Thanks for that. Something just popped into my head as well. I think it'd be helpful to, to understand. So, apologies to listeners with things bouncing around a little bit, but um, um, but it's trying to think of all the possible scenarios as well as we go. So if um, once uh, once the interview's taken place and you've either given your prepared statement or you, you've got no comment or you, you've answered the yeah. questions, um, is there a timeline then in terms of how often you should get updates? Or, um, yeah. Okay. Okay, so the regulations talk about every four weeks, so every 28 days you should be given a a written or verbal update, uh, whether that's by the Federation rep or to you. You can specify either, um, and that's the same for the IAPC as well. They should be giving regular updates. Okay, and if they're not? Uh, This is where the Fed rep would challenge back to say, hang on, you've not updated us, we'd like that update, and there are any reasons why there may be some really specific reasons as to why, but you should be told. Um, and it's generally not acceptable if you don't get the updates because it's there in regulations. Mm, okay. Um, can we talk about um, um, underperformance, so UPP and sickness? Yeah. Um, because obviously there's, there's the discipline side of that as well in terms of, and I, I, I as I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the Fed were fighting to, to put an end or, or try and change the process around ill health, sickness, mm-hmm. disability with UPP. Is that is that correct? So I think you've just got to de- have the distinction of, is, a, is it a performance issue, i.e. I'm not doing my job right, mm-hmm. or is there an underlying health issue, whether that could be mental health, physical health, disability? Because as we know, if we're talking around conditions that have had a really adverse and severe effect on somebody's health and well-being, they would get additional protections under the Equality Act and Disability Act, and therefore mm. forces generally are compelled to make reasonable adjustments. Mm. So we need to understand what it is, uh, how we can help, and if somebody has got a genuine disability or illness, then they shouldn't be dealt with, in my view, under the performance framework. We need mm. to work together to, to see how we can help that individual on and therefore avoid the the UPAP process. Yeah. Yeah. And that would that includes mental health, PTSD. Oh massively. I mean we yeah, are exactly. seeing yeah. now um, you know, colleagues unfortunately being um succumbed to PTSD and increased mental health. I remember reading um a blog by uh, Nick Hadley, who's the chief constable of uh, Northamptonshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, who who recited that you know a, a cop in their lifetime is likely to see something like six hundred adverse incidents mm. versus a member of the public who may have two or three, mm. and that's massive. So somebody who's going through a thirty year career, having been to fatal road collisions, perhaps been to uh, you know sudden deaths involving adults and children, 
been exposed to child protection matters, all that kind of thing. How do you then cope with that and how do you bring yourself out? So I think, quite interestingly, I think we'll probably see over the next few years mental health being pushed even more in not just the police but across the emergency service family as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And and it's really difficult, isn't it, because you know, it's people at the most vulnerable as well. And then obviously if they are being taken through that, um, you know, the underperformance process, um, because they can't go to work for, you know, for, for mental health reasons and, and uh, or anxiety and such like, I take it, you know, that, that is when they're at the most vulnerable and, um, and, you know, adding the disciplinary process on top of that as well. Um, it's yeah. clearly obviously really, really difficult. So, you know, again, you've nailed it. It's it's making sure, I guess, through either your fed rep or, or friend, and I hopefully through, um, I don't know, either another friend or you know a good supervisor or whatever it might be that can can fight your corner to say, actually, look, this isn't a disciplinary. This is actually more to do with the mental health and need support. And I guess it's just making sure that's in place. And I think you're right. And again, what we're seeing nationally is a trend of really inexperienced supervisors managing teams not really having the tools to do the job. And when we look mm-hmm. at mental health, it's really kind of the iceberg effect. You can mm-hmm. see the top and somebody seems okay, but underneath, you don't really know what you're dealing with. And because you don't know what you're dealing with, how can you then help that individual? You know, and it's really difficult, particularly um, male officers, if I may say so, to show that weakness that you may be struggling um, because predominantly... Uh, they want to show that unity, that strength that they can cope. Mm-hmm. And there's additional pressures there that they don't want to show that weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what's been prevalent. Uh, the, the Fed did the man up, man down campaign uh, recently just to say it's okay not to be okay and to check in with people to say, are you all right? I, I, I volunteer as a hostage negotiator and um, I did quite often deal with people in crisis on bridges and things like that. And it's only when you actually drill down and listen to them and what issues they represent that you can really walk in their shoes. And I think it's the same for our police officers. Unless you understand what pressures people have got and the journey that they've gone in, how can you then help them as a line manager, as a friend, and bring them on? Um, You know, the serving of a Reg 17 notice may be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah. And we need to be really acutely aware of the impacts of serving notices or misunderstanding what a performance is versus what a capability issue may be. And this is where, as a service, we need to absolutely recognise occupational health facilities, making sure the processes we've got are slick, that if we do have any question marks over people's ability, that we get capability assessments done. Can we put reasonable adjustments in place? Can we work together to... um, work with that officer to get them back performing again. It may well be in a different way through a back office function, for example, but they're still contributing towards making the communities safer, not on the front line anymore. Yeah, yeah. Are, are the Fed having conversations at a national level, Phil, around um, the impact of mental health and what could be put in place to to assist partic- predominantly frontline or, you know, yeah. there's operational officers um, and those who are in really challenging roles? You know, is, is the conversations taking place at that national level there are um, colleagues uh, within the federation um, who have the well-being portfolio are regularly working with chief officer teams oscar kilo other charities and things to highlight the um, good work the police officers do but the consequences of doing that good work um so Oscar Kilo, for example, uh, are the wellbeing arm of the police service. Yeah. They've got counselling provisions. They've got mobile uh, wellbeing facilities that go out to to, to police uh, officers and things like that. And that's really critical that we go out there. And I think a massive part of, of what we need to do as a, a service is to actually educate ourselves with what mental health can look like and, and triggers to kind of look out for. So if I turn up to work and I, you know, I'm either a bit ratty or angry, well, what is the cause of that? I've had a bit of a road rage on the way, way into work or mm-hmm. I've got things going on in the background that are influencing how how I'm being because if those behaviours resonate out to members of the public, then I'm going to get a complaint mm-hmm. and I'm not going to get the support that perhaps I need. Mm-hmm. So... In terms of priorities for the Fed at the moment, then where do you, where are the priorities lying? 
what's one of the main um, conversations? So, so the, the overarching role of the Federation is to influence, negotiate and represent. And that's always been the, the, the same. So to, um, if I look at, for example, the pay morale survey, the vast majority of police officers uh, are dismayed with how the government's treating police officers when they look mm. at pay and remuneration. So absolutely, mm. we are hoping to negotiate and influence things on a national level around pay and reform where we can, accepting that, you know, there are challenges with other public sectors at the minute as well. Also looking at um, that disparity around experience as well. As I said to you, we've, we've hemorrhaged a large number of officers. We've got new and experienced officers in. How do we plug that gap? How do we bring those skill balances up? That's a challenge. So we're working with the College of Policing around that as well mm-hmm. to try and bring those standards up. Um, you've also got, um, sorry, just bear with me. Because that links to retention as well, is it massively links to retention? Yeah, I mean, if, if we look at the kind of headlines, December last year was uh, we had more people leaving than joining. Yeah. Um, and I think that's partly down to when you look at the the results of the morale survey is the stresses and strains of the jobs now. When you look at, for example, assaults on police officers, they were up from 36 or nearly 37,000 up to 41,221 as of March 2022. That's 110 assaults on officers every day of the year. And that's wholly unacceptable. But those assaults are not just physical assaults. They're the mental impacts as well. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't just affect the officer. That's families, friends, colleagues, um, and that's every single day, 110 assaults every day. It's unbelievable. And of course, um, people people don't want to be exposed to assaults. It should never be acceptable and it should never be a part of the job. And we've now got with the, 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 the routes of entry into the police around degrees and non-degree holders and things like that, um, along with transferable pensions. Mm-hmm. People don't look at policing any longer to be a vocation. They see yeah. it as a come in see what policing looks like and then potentially leave five, seven years into the job to go and do something yeah. else. Yeah, I'm certainly seeing that. And and I'm also seeing, um, which is such a shame, but we're, we're losing a lot of the best, most emotionally intelligent, um, victim-focused, amazing work ethic. You know, we're losing some really, really good people because they know that their skills and experience and their behaviours and values um, are valued outside policing as well. And it's, you know, they're recognising that. And, and uh, it is, it's a bit of a perfect storm at the moment, I think, in terms of, you know, and I know we've just had pay. Sorry, can you go? No, I'm just going to, you know, that you just encompass policing now. You know, police officers do have that discipline. They do have that can-do attitude. Um, you know, you tell them go and do something, they'll go and do it. And mm. the variety of skills, and this is where, you know, we could have a great debate around the entry routes of policing, but you could go through your career being an advanced driver, public order officer, taser, all that kind of thing, but then leave with nothing. But what you've been operating as throughout your service is actually probably at a degree type level around planning investigations, the decision-making process, your analysis and evaluation of evidence and all that kind of thing. So, you know, I do think somewhere down the line, we need some accreditation around the skills that we've got so we can leave with something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. It really would make such a difference. Um, um, all right, there's a couple of questions that we've got as well that we haven't covered. We've covered most actually within the um, you know within okay. the chat. So, uh, but a couple of bits that are still outstanding. The one of them relates to it's a really good question actually. Um, the impact of the cost of living crisis. Yeah, and you know the fact that um, I think some forces have, have had to open food banks and and supporting. Yeah, colleagues and families and things. So, again, you know, are the Fed aware of this? What's happening? And you know, has there been an impact in terms of um, an uplift, maybe in in uh, misconduct, gross misconduct, those sort of things, because of mistakes being made? Or uh... um, we're not seeing an evidence base of an increase of mm-hmm. misconduct cases due to the cost of living. Um, that said, it's something that we will keep a watching brief on. Um, I think again, it'd be pointing to point out that cops have had over a 20% reduction in their pay mm. and remuneration, uh, yeah. courtesy of the, the, the government um, cutbacks and, and, and whatnot. And, and obviously cops are human and do feel those pressures as well. Mm. Mm. I am aware that some stations are um, running food banks and that has really um, 
a sorry state that we find ourselves in. But again, as reflective, you know, um, police of the public, public of the police. Yeah, and we need to do a lot more. We need to do a lot more, uh, and this yeah. is where again we look at the investment in policing that's sadly lacked since two thousand and ten. Mm-hmm. We need a real time pay increase in line with other sectors, um, and we can only hope that that message is listened to by governments and um, action is taken. It's been really difficult for me to bite my lip with regards to <laughs> politics, so I'm trying to be <laughs> as. Uh, as level as I possibly can be, but um, you know, I, I I was very fortunate. I was sort of through that. I joined mid eighties um, when there was a bit of an uplift, and um, I left in in twenty fifteen. So, um, and I had a, I had a really good career. I was very very fortunate, and it is heartbreaking to see what's happening to policing. Um, you know, even the eight years since I've gone, it's um, it's and the stories I hear on a daily basis and. Um, you know, I'm getting more and more people contacting me from, you know, very early on in service saying this is not what, this is not how it was sold. This is not what I expected it to be. And I'm getting loads and loads of cops leaving that you think would be in a pension trap. Yeah. Another 20, 20 plus year point saying it's not worth it. It's not worth it from a mental health perspective. And and, and, and you're right, because I think, again, when you look at the uh, austerity and policing, what tended to happen was that, Policing is the organisation that can never say no. And what we've done is absorbed other agencies' demand, whether it be social care, mental health, uh, NHS. Uh, you know, you look at the recent strikes, I can't get an ambulance or ring the police. And that 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 uh, kind of demand has been absorbed into policing. And we now find ourselves uh, across the country where we've got a number of forces in special measures. Mm-hmm. And you say to a, a, a police officer, you know, what's your roles and responsibilities? You're kind of a jack-of-all-trades master of none and i would argue that every day between 60 70 75 percent of demand that comes in isn't police work mm-hmm. so therefore when you talk around complaints and the risk of exposure of complaints you know if you're with a mental health patient who you've sectioned and you can't hand them over to the appropriate care and something adverse happens then you're at risk of complaint or investigation by the ipc mm-hmm so on and so forth. So I think as a, as a collective, as a police service, and there is work ongoing across the country, we need to realign expectation. And ultimately, the public asks us to uphold the law and to bring bad people to justice. We can't do that if we're sat at hospitals yeah. or we're looking after mental health patients or we're doing the job of other agencies. And that's where I think the improvements need to be made. And if we can see the improvements there... Hopefully people will take a bit more pride in policing and doing what we need to do, which is to keep the public safe, keep bad people off the streets. Um, And we'll get recognised for doing that and improved pain conditions across the board and hopefully restore some of that public confidence in policing. Mm. Yeah. The the challenge we've got that you know better than I do, I'm sure, Um, haven't been out of it for a while, but the, the challenge that we've got is that all of those other services that we're reliant on are also broken. Um, so again, it's um, it's just so so challenging, you know, to try and fix something like that is is massive with the current it, state that we're in. So, and 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 when you know, I'm not a politician, but when we recruit twenty thousand officers, but realistically, you need fifty five thousand. The numbers don't add up, and what you get with less is less, and that's what we're seeing, unfortunately, now. Um, the service creaking at the seams and uh, as I say when there are a number of forces in special measures um, that, that's quite a sad reflection and, and, and radical action needs to be taken in my view mm, No I agree it's, it is pretty heartbreaking um, something I forgot to ask as well actually as we were going through the um, so, again apologies listeners this is going <laughs> all over the place but uh, yeah the um, a question that came up as well from the group was with regards to pension and what happens to your pension if yep. you are dismissed. Okay. Um, so depending on what the nature of the uh, conduct is, it does say actually uh, treason or any abusive position could be considered to have pension uh, contributions claimed back either on a temporary or permanent basis, and that would be something that would be steered from the uh, Police and Crime Commissioner's office. So it could happen, but it's got to be really... Uh, there are limitations as to what they can do and how they can do it. It's got to be something really serious. Okay. 
so in theory, if it's not overly serious, it's not treason or, or something so uh, so um, criminal that they can keep your pension, you would then get it at age 65, 6, 7, whatever it is that you're going to be um, at that um, pension age. It would all be dependent on what pension scheme that you were on without overcomplicating it. If you were on the 87 scheme, 2006 or 2015. Um, but, as you know, the Fed don't generally give that pension advice. However, yeah. if they're linking with their local uh, federation, they will have uh, financial advisors who may be able to offer those figures or, or, yeah. or what the criteria would be. Yeah. I mean, again, just to absolutely nail on, I think it's absolutely right that the likes of... Uh, Wayne Cousins and Carrick absolutely go after the pensions, the Absolutely. abhorrent crimes, and no one would agree that they should be keeping them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Thank you for that. The um, And also the barred list as well. Yes. Um, so there's a bit of confusion around what that actually means and the type of roles that people can go for. If So if they are, if someone is dismissed uh, as a result of gross misconduct, um they get placed on a barred list. In fact, you you explain yeah. that, Phil, because you're, you're the expert. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, if you are dismissed, uh, either through the gross misconduct process or accelerated hearing process, uh, one of the outcomes would be that you would be placed on the barring list through the College of Policing. And the idea uh, with that is that um, it's got to be quite serious for you to be dismissed. And there would be no desire for you to rejoin any law enforcement agency so it doesn't have to be a home office force it could be the national crime agency or, or other things like that and that's saying that actually you wouldn't be suitable to rejoin and that would be valid for five years and then after that time you could reapply to come off or make representations to come off so is that purely to join another police organization or does it include other organizations or government bodies or, or who else or schools or who else you know, I mean, you can there's have a, access to that barred list. So, again, depending on roles that you're applying for, um, wh- whether that be incumbent through a DBS check or things like that, that, that would depend on on the role that you were going for and what the requirements were. Generally, if it was law enforcement or anything to do with law related, I would imagine that they're going to apply through the College of Policing to say, can you check Phil Jones against the database and are there any flags? Okay. Because there's a few people that have helped that um, have been through the gross misconduct process um, and get cleared through DBS because they're not going for roles that are legal or, you know, yeah. government or schools and that sort of thing as well. So Yeah, I, I think generally it would be notifiable uh, occupations, so things dealing with vulnerable people, elderly, uh, positions of trust, that kind of thing. That's where your enhanced DBS checks would come into it. Okay, all right. Yeah, great stuff. All right, mate. Look, yeah, I know you had a list of things that you emailed through, and it still hasn't arrived. So, right. is there anything that I've missed um, um, on, on your list of, of topics that you wanted to cover that you think would be helpful? No, I don't think so. Um, I hope you don't think I've waffled on. It's great, mate. Honestly, and and it's it's my fault if we scattergunned a little bit because obviously things have popped into my head as we've been chatting as well. So, um, so no, it's, no, it's been really helpful, mate. Really helpful, and um, and hopefully that that allows people to understand a little bit more about what their rights are, what their expectations are, certainly things like how often should you hear from, uh, you know, from the investigating officer or IOPC, uh, those sort of updates. Um, It's interesting as well to to hear that there are stats that are now suggesting that IOPC are increasing their volume of results within 12 months and that sort of thing, you know, so fingers crossed that continues and because it does have a, a huge impact um, you know, I, I only received a couple of complaints. Actually, I was quite fortunate, but and a few times, you know, when you get them, you sort of think that's just absolute rubbish. But it still worries you. Mm-hmm. It still plays on your mind until the process yeah. has been gone through. And uh, and again, the fact that you know people understand their rights, they know who they should speak to at what point, when they can bring in um, legal advice as well, under what circumstances, the impact on pensions. All of that, I mate, mean, it's been incredibly helpful. So, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a very, very busy man. And, and well, I'm, I'm more than happy if you do get uh, any queries as a result of the podcast, then you've got my details. Just um, get those, those folks to reach out to me and I'll do what I can to uh, help them. It's no problem. Yeah. Fantastic. So, first portal call would be if they've got any issues, the first portal call should be their local, local fed, fed rep. Yeah, local yeah. branch or local fed rep. Um, see what engagement they get there. 
uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to to speak to individuals if, if they want on a case by case basis, um, just to if if they want to talk things through. Perhaps if they they're not happy with the advice they've been given, or they just want to, you know, two heads are better than one type of thing, or indeed they you know they want to go deeper into things and and have some discussions, then more than happy. That's really kind, mate. What's the best method of getting hold of you? You've got my Fed email address, haven't you? So just yeah, uh, pass I'll that add over. to the show notes. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, great stuff. Cool. Um, yeah, fantastic. Phil, thanks so much for your time. Very, very kind of you. And, um, and thanks for being so open and candid about you know where we're at. And um, and I've, I've tried to remain as apolitical as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, mate. Bless. You're welcome. Yes, speak to you again soon. Take Thank care. So massive thanks to Phil for his time. Uh, really helpful. And we covered a whole range of topics. It's also interesting to get a steer from uh, you know what's important to the Fed at the moment as well. So, uh, so that was really helpful. And I appreciate uh, Phil being as open and candid as he was. If you like what you've heard, you can uh, leave a review on Spotify and also on Apple. And I would really appreciate if you do, because it helps bump me up the uh, ranks and gets more people to listen to this as it uh, shows up uh, in search terms and everything else for Apple and Spotify and others. And don't forget, you can also join the Facebook group through uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Blue Light Levers. The Academy is flying at the moment. We're having such success stories through uh, the uh, Academy membership that we have. And you can find out more through uh, bluelightlevers.com. And we've, of course, got our event that's happening on Saturday, the 29th of April at the Millennium Point in Birmingham. And uh, as terrifying as it is, tickets are actually on sale. So I shall put a link within the show notes. And uh, it is available through um, through Eventbrite. And, uh, but there are different pricing structures based uh, around when you actually apply for your tickets. So we've got super early birds, early birds, and then the full price tickets as well. And it's also based on how many tickets are sold so, um, so yeah, don't hang about. If you are interested in that, we've got a number of exhibitors as well that have shown a real interest. And uh, I'll, I'll be releasing more info on that as well. And we've got some amazing speakers. We've got Dr. Sarah Sharman, uh, who has done a report on police retention and the 72% increase in uh, voluntary resignations uh, in the last 12 months. We've got Charlotte Eve talking CVs LinkedIn. We have um, Hannah Bailey from Blue Light Wellbeing, who's going to be talking all things to do with mental health and uh, PTSD and also identity. Uh, we've got Rob Heath talking pensions, so we're from his pension, police pensions expert. It, this event is in partnership with Cole Mahay as well, so we've got loads going on with Cole, and we'll be talking about um, entrepreneurship and business ownership, and also about presenting during interviews as well, so how to actually present if you're asked to, um, to do so within an interview process. And I'll be talking about how to identify the uh, types of roles that we can do. We'll be talking about our, you know, I hate this, but we'll talk about our transferable skills. And uh, we'll also be covering a lot of stuff around interview techniques and uh, mindset and all sorts of things as well. So it looks as though it's going to be a fantastic day. Really excited about it. And uh, we'll really hope to see you there. So the ticket details will be in the show notes. And uh, yeah, that's it for now. So look forward to speaking to you again soon. We've got some crackers coming up. You're going to enjoy the next couple as well. So uh, we'll speak again very soon. Take care. Bye for now.